The following may contain offensive language, adult humor, and or content that some viewers may find offensive. The views and opinions expressed by any one speaker does not explicitly or necessarily reflect or represent those of Mark Rattledge or W2M Network. Please listen with caution, or don't listen at all. Okay. Jason, I think you forgot to, I think you unmuted yourself during the uh, theme song there. That was weird. Because all of a sudden I could hear you over the music. <laughs> no, no judgment, just whatever. Okay, so yeah. Awkward ending aside, welcome to TV Party Tonight. I'm your host, Alexis Aina, and tonight uh we're even though you know it's november we're going back into the halloween spirit to talk about guillermo del toro's cabinet of curiosities otherwise known as what we were hoping we were going to get with the midnight club and sadly didn't <laughs> pretty much all yes. right so joining me tonight my fellow horror fanatics jason teasley hello jason what's going on glad to be back talking about a like you said a little bit better um anthology type series and what we definitely expected out of out of our previous show that we did not get mm -hmm. and of course we also have robert winfrey glad to have you back robert happy to be back i'm repping the miskatonic esoteric order of explorers tonight because uh love it it was either, I need a miskatonic shirt so badly it was this or my pan's labyrinth t-shirt and i found this one first Pan's Labyrinth t-shirt is probably buried in the bottom of the laundry hamper. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's on the bottom of my clean pile. <laughs> oh, you have a clean thing. pile and a dirty pile. Okay. okay. Well, I have the clean pile and then I have the laundry basket. And Okay. <laughs> All right. So, yes, this is an anthology series that Netflix brought out on uh october 25th every episode is introduced by uh del toro himself uh, this kind of has a very similar appeal to i would say twilight zone or alfred hitchcock presents yeah yeah um, I, I got that vibe yeah each episode has a different director we have uh the first we're just gonna go episode by episode and we're gonna talk about the strengths the weaknesses and what we thought were some of the scariest moments what we thought were some of the blandest moments and maybe just a few moments from some of these directors that maybe we did or did not know that, uh, you know, really could turn out something like this. I also have a comment here from Mr. John Guy. Aw, thanks John a lot, Guy. man. Hey, any amount of time you can spend with us is legally can be used against you, I'm pretty sure, but we're very <laughs> grateful for it. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure this may contribute to possible torture um, aesthetics. We're not, but we have not been we have not been sanctioned by the Geneva Convention just yet. We're well on our way. What do we have to do to get that low? Half pad on more shows. Oh Jesus Christ! You you said it, not me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't think Pat. you were going to go there, man. No, I Pat. 
Pat doesn't qual. No, like if we wanted to, I'm not going to say it. I'd hurt too many feelings. I know what I would do. Like, <laughs> because I've thought about this an occasional bit, an occasional bit of seriousness. Like if you want to go enhanced interrogation techniques, uh, I know what I would do. Let's put it that way. I know, I know what, I know who I would have on and I know what we would talk about. And at the end of it, we'd all try to kill each other, but it could be used for that purpose. Hmm. So Loki. Indeed. I've been determined to find some way to work, at least start working more of those clips in. I feel like I'm disappointing Mark if I don't. All right. So the first episode is Lot 36. This is directed by Guillermo Navarro. This is based on an original short story by Del Toro himself. Uh, Apparently he got the idea to write this after his family's um, storage unit was mistakenly sold. Very similar to what happens uh, to the woman Amelia in this so we have tim blake nelson as our lead character who i have mentioned on multiple podcasts i honestly believe can do no wrong as a character actor i love seeing him come on screen he's pretty much this generation's harry dean stanton i think it's a good uh, comparison and he plays a very xenophobic right-wing veteran and it we all know someone like this guy you know, we all know somebody who listens to this kind of stuff who, yes, went overseas, fought, has to find some way to work that into every argument. Incredibly xenophobic, very right wing, listens to right wing media, doesn't want to talk to anyone else who he doesn't think is on his level, thinks that his injury and what he's done has pushed him above. So he purchases the rights to an abandoned storage room. Uh, they know very little about it, but they do see that the gentleman who previously owned it visited that place every day, had a very bizarre way of entering. He hopped forward and hopped back. I'm assuming that was like some kind of superstition thing for good luck. Uh, yeah, kind of like a ri- or kind of like a ritual ritualistic type thing. Mm-hmm. After once we find out what's going on, could have been some kind of ritual type thing, or could have just been. Just because, yeah, superstition for good luck. That shit uh, crazy. We also find out that he had also, pur- this is something he does frequently, is that he purchases a lot of these looking and for. This is one uh, of his jobs. Uh, yeah. This is, a, this is a real thing people do. If you default on the payments to your storage unit, then the owner of the storage unit lot auctions off whatever's inside to people who come root through it looking for stuff. Yeah, like they said, sometimes they find, uh, you know, family heirlooms, gold, uh, bearer bonds, things like that. And occasionally you find crap or literally crap, as the guy says. Yeah, mostly it's crap. Um, yeah. But you do on occasion find stuff that's really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, again, that that happens. It's not it happens often enough. I mean, for a while there, there was a joke that the economy was so bad that there were three different shows expressly about the buying of abandoned storage units going on television at the same time. Yeah. Pretty much. Okay. So uh, we also have him interacting with a Mexican immigrant named Amelia, like I said, uh, similar to what Del Toro went through. His, uh, her family's lot is mistakenly sold. Apparently uh, the notice about the lack of payment got sent to the wrong address. She didn't get it. And her lot was purchased by nick and she talks to him and she's like look i just can i go into that and see if there's anything in the way of like my family's letters or photos those are useless to you you know just let me get my stuff and nick 
very cruelly says no and he hands her the padlock from it saying here this is yours you can have that back you know giant middle finger yeah uh so he goes in and he started looks looking through stuff to sell and he finds a german seance table with three volumes on demon summoning so that's something kind of interesting there and i love when he brings it to the uh, occult specialist and she looks at it and goes and he's yeah, like like you like you do well apparently his usual pawn dealer uh was he was going to take it to him but another one of his partners on this who works at the um uh the storage lot unit says here this person's a little bit better take it to her and i love his reactions like it's like seance like a ouija board or something and she goes a little more serious than that just a touch just a touch and the three volumes are actually about summoning and confining a demon to hell or to earth so we get another guy in named roland who is apparently an expert in the occult and he says that if there's a fourth book and if they've got the fourth book if they got all four they got the complete collection then this is going to be over three hundred thousand dollars nick as we see owes a ton of money to somebody <laughs> to the point that the some guy like just you know smacked the crap out of his car for him destroyed his windshield and his uh front window that, that kind of hurt my soul a little bit like it didn't have to hit the front windshield man that just really complicates everything you take out the side window fair play you take out one of the rear view mirrors again that's fair play don't you don't have to hit the windshield that's just a, that's just a gotta gotta hammer that point home you already hit the guy in the head with the hammer i mean <laughs> I feel like if you go for the head trauma then the windshield is overkill if you go for the like either or you only need one of those so they find a secret room built in to the storage unit they had earlier commented that some some of the storage units seemed like they were smaller than the others and it's because there was the secret panel put in they go in and they find it's a desecrated body of i i i, I may have misunderstood but i think it was the body of the sister of the mm -hmm. old man who died and left the storage unit um Y yes, but minor point of the uh, the English language. I assume you meant desiccated. Did I say desecrated or de yeah? Okay, I'm desecrated. sorry. I can't read. That's okay. <laughs> There's no R those in are, that word. <laughs> th those are just those are just two very different things. It's an easy mistake to make. <laughs> <laughs> and her body is in uh, well, I'm just gonna call it a devil's trap. Thank you, supernatural, and it's yeah. holding a demon inside of it. And of course, Nick's not going to listen to the expert who's with him, walks over the devil's trap, moves the salt, and literally all hell breaks loose. And as Nick tries to leave, he finds the door is locked. And who's outside but Amelia? And when he asks if he, she can open the door for him, well, karma's a bitch. Let's just put it that way. Yes. Um and the the visuals of this because you get this i i call it uh when i was watching it it was the resident evil-esque um monster just like totally tracking him through the storage unit which i thought was really good uh for tension wise simply because you had that the visual of the of the creature of the demon was very intriguing the the route they went with it and just because it was menacing and would just he could not escape it 
And just to the, the little revenge factor, when she throws the lock back on the door as he's trying to get out, was, was great. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, having spent a lot of time in storage units, um, because I moved around a lot as a kid and my dad had way too much stuff. So I've, I've spent a lot of time in storage lots and I've been in those, in some of those places where like you could get lost. Like this is, this feels like a maze. Everything feels, um, it, it feels the same, you know, and there's the timer for the lights. Oh, that. That almost gave me flashbacks. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, lights on a timer. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get the aesthetic right for this particular episode. It feels very kind of gritty. It feels very, you know, grungy. Uh, I kind of appreciated the fact that Nick gave absolutely no care to the theoretical supernatural elements of this. Like, because, and I mean, let's be honest here. If any of us are in that position where this weird German guy is like, yeah, here's all this weird supernatural occult stuff that might be going on. We're not going to give that too much consideration. That, that that changes when you get to the room with like a body in the middle of it. Like, okay, maybe we should at yeah, that point. It's like, okay, dude, it's like, I understand not believing in ghosts. I understand you're a skeptic. There is a body on a devil's crap <laughs> with the head missing and tentacles coming out of the head. Yeah, again, that that's the point when you start paying attention, but everything up until that point when he when these people are clearly like they think they're imparting some some significant wisdom or deep secrets and this guy just does not care like no, you you attached a dollar amount to this. I live in the real world. So Yeah, I was expect I knew he was going to break the barrier, but I thought he was just going to get too excited. He was like there's a book and then he makes a lunge for it before uh, what was the other guy? Roland stops him and pulls yeah. him back, and he's already broken the tape, as it were. But no, he he warns him, he's like, "Don't do that." And he's like, "Screw you! I want the book." And he keeps walking. It's like, dude, common sense, come on. Yeah. Hey, but hey, money talks though, uh, and demons I think with that... demons in the face of humans talk too. Well, yeah, but sort of. I mean, I mean, theoretically, this could have been because I guess you could say it like this is you could have had the the line of thought of it's something valuable that you know you have the aesthetics to make it look like it's something more than it's not i guess that's kind of like the um like a deterrent but you know and, and you know you have skepticism because you don't see this interaction so you know i understand the skepticism of it but also, I kind of err on the side of caution, and I want, I want, I, if I see some, I'm going to be hesitant, at least a little hesitant to try to figure out what the hell is going on. All right. Well, our next one, Graveyard Rats, uh, this <laughs> is directed by Vincenzo Natali, who I didn't know this is actually a longtime player in horror. This is the guy who gave us the first Q movie, gave us Splice. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is based on a short story by Henry Kuttner. This uh, involves Masson. I I thought it was Mason at first, but he pronounces it Masson with a French accent. He's a grave robber who actually owns the graveyard. Uh, again, same situation as Nick. He owes money. So he's been trying desperately to rob various graves. He finds out that we got an old guy who's being buried with not only several gold teeth. This takes place 
way back in the day when it was actually like gold gold in the teeth uh but he's also being buried with it i think it's like a scepter or a sword it's or a sword it's yeah. a it's yeah. a saber that was gifted to him by the king of england so we're uh in terms of the timeline here we are maybe like uh, like I said, it's on one of the graves isn't it the year that this takes place um it's stylized it's it's definitely we're, stylized we're dealing uh, like early 1900s at the latest yeah mm -hmm. yeah uh masan has also been having trouble robbing various graves because of the rats uh he goes on this very big very well done speech i should add that this actor uh david hewlett what played worth in the first cube movie and he is really good in this. He gives this very passionate speech about how terrified he is of rats and how they keep showing up in his business. He's like, well, yeah, dude, you, you own a graveyard and you're a grave robber. You're going to come across a bunch of freaking rats. So old guy with valuable sword dies. My son tries to rob him only to find out the rats have literally drug the corpse out of the coffin into the series of tunnels. And this is where I actually give full credit to Natalie because this was the one that scared me the most. Uh, I don't, it's like this is a short that somehow captures claustrophobia, fear of being buried alive, and fear of rats. And just all three of those just really are terrifying concepts. And he somehow works all of them not over the top. Well, the Rones of unusual sizes a little over the top but i still thought it was very well done and you have so much of this of him crawling through the tunnels trying to you know psych himself up even though he hears the rats and he's terrified of them he is stuck in this confined space knowing that the object that he, or the creature that he fears the most is probably either right behind him or right in front of them and he is driven solely by greed and the need to survive and it, it i really really just scared the crap out of me i'm gonna be fully honest yeah this one was was one that was very very high on my uneasy meter i guess you could say simply i'm not a i'm not a fan of claustrophobia i i stuff like that like you know like the uh the descent the descent i love simply because of the nature of the atmosphere and the claustrophobia the stuff like that i think that that panic is something that we can all relate to being confined in a, in a and then you throw rats on it rats are probably some of the smallest yet most fear inducing animals that you can come across um and they get a bad rap uh, because, you know, the bluebonic plague and everything. But, yeah, the and, and the way they portrayed his, like, his utter fear was something that I really enjoyed the, the tone and just the, the fear that it brought on to him was something that really resonated. Uh, Amber could not watch that episode. She was about halfway through it and she noped out. <laughs> uh, and she was like, look, I can't do rats. I, I'm not cool with rats. Just can't do it. I'm noping out on this one. See, rats in general don't scare me as long as 
they are where they belong. There's right. there's a joke that I've often made, you know, when people say they're afraid of clowns. And I go, well, if I see a clown at a circus or a carnival or a kid's birthday, no, I'm not going to be scared of that clown. I'm walking down the street and I, and I see a clown just on the end of the street. It's like, yeah, that's going to scare the crap out of me because that's not where they belong. Same with rats. I see rats in the ground or something. It's like, yeah, that's their home. I see a rat run across, you know, my floor. I'm like, no, that's where I'm going to scream. Well, rats are mean. That's the other thing people have to remember about, especially feral rats. Like, they're mm -hmm. real mean creatures. Yeah. But yeah, this, um, like I said, and again, the fact that they even worked in being buried alive. We have a scene where Masson, he's terrified because he wants to turn around and, you know, not go down these tunnels. But he, we have this very brief kind of fantasy nightmare scene where he sees himself being locked into a coffin by his debtor or dead, the guy he owes money to. Yeah. And when he escapes... He climbs back into, he thinks that he sees the light at the end of the tunnel. It's the light reflecting off of a plaque on the empty coffin. Yep. And that, being buried alive, actually, that's one of the things that scares me more than anything. And that scene of him getting in there and realizing he's trapped, even before suddenly all the rats swarm him, was so scary. And, of course, we got that gross-out thing at the end, which scary very over the top but you know what an over the top scare is still yeah. pretty damn good of the rats coming out of his body Ugh. oh god Ugh. squirm major squirm uh, this one does uh, certainly does a good job of trying to lean into the horror aspect of the show um this is a nice rebound for this particular director whose most recent film was the regrettable in the tall grass i liked in the tall grass Never awesome. even heard of it. It's on Netflix. It's based on a Stephen King story. Like the, the wait, the is it a Stephen King story or a Joe Hill story? Might be one they wrote together, if memory yeah. serves. Um, the setup is interesting for that. For that, that works better as a story than it does as a movie. Like the actual short story is pretty darn good. You've read it, uh, yeah. As um, because I was so unimpressed with the movie, I went, wait a minute. There's no way these two guys produce something this bad. So, again, the setup's interesting, and the first, you know, 30 minutes of the movie are pretty good. Like, there's a genuine sense of eeriness to it, but there's it just fails the longer it goes. Okay. Um, this is much more of a turn to form for him. I mean, he's directed several episodes of Hannibal, which, you know, I love Hannibal. Uh, Who doesn't? Weirdos. I'm convinced. Weirdos don't like that, <laughs> that show. Uh, the acting here is good. The costuming is very good. I like that they keep a lot of things unknown um, that just hinted at like, yeah, there there's rumors about why there are giant rats, why the rats here are worse than the rats elsewhere. But, you know, we don't know why exactly. He stumbles across one of their temples to some kind of an elder god. And it's an elder god that looked an awful lot like the monster that we saw in the previous episode. A lot like it. Yeah. Uh, so. But it's never; it doesn't go into it any more than that. So there's a lot that is left on the table as far as that goes, and I I kind of appreciate that when it's a deliberate choice by the creative team to leave questions. Uh, it's good, and like you mentioned, the lead actor, you know, uh, hats off to him; does a tremendous job. Yeah, the scene again, the scene where he comes into the coffin and realizes that he is buried alive now because you see him just saying oh jesus christ thank you i repent and he really thinks he's you know home yeah. safe and when he climbs into that coffin and realizes no you're gonna die there the panic that sets in how badly it affects him is truly terrifying 
All right, moving on to episode three, The Autopsy. This is directed by David Pryor uh, with a... Oh, God, it's a teleplay by David S. Goyer. And based on a short and story... And it feels like, like it. From a, right. from a writing perspective, it feels like it. This is an interesting one because it is insanely dialogue-heavy. It is extremely prologue-heavy. There is so much going on in this that, for the most part, would not translate well. No. to a film whatsoever now there are parts i think do of, they actually do pull that off but i do not credit that to goyer i credit that to f murray abraham and i believe it's luke roberts who plays uh joe allen uh there is a chemistry between these actors uh yeah. while they're talking about so but anyway so we have dr carl winters uh who is a pathologist has been asked to perform autopsies on several minors who died recently uh, one of them, uh, Joe Allen, caused an explosion while carrying some kind of mysterious object. We don't know what it is. Uh, this is not a short for anyone who is squeamish because we get to see a lot of the autopsies. This is a very body horror based yes. short. There is um, a lot of very visceral blood and guts. I mean, literally, he's cleaning out the bodies uh the main purpose is the sheriff mentions that they need to essentially find proof that these guys died not directly because of the bomb otherwise the insurance companies are not going to fork over money to the families which is horrible but if you read up about coal mining incidents you know it is sadly very common it is a horrible thing <clears throat> for families that have to go through it is and uh, it's it's a bureaucratic nightmare because uh, much as we'd all like to throw nothing but blame at the insurance companies in those cases, and I'm not here to necessarily stump for the insurance industry, mind you, but that is a dangerous profession, and God bless the people who do it mm -hmm. because you, you yes. keep everything running. Uh, but it is a dangerous profession, and when you're dealing with the liability that comes along with that, there is a degree of due diligence that has to come along with if you paid out every claim to everyone who dies on the job in that instance, you your insurance company will rapidly no longer be in existence. So it it's kind of a scummy thing. It always feels scummy, but there's it's not entirely unwarranted. And coming from coming from a pretty much coal mining driven um, region here in West Virginia. I see this often, actually, you know, <laughs> uh, a real quick story. I actually had my underground coal mining card, was driving to my first night underground, and there was an explosion at the mine I was supposed to be working at. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah, it, it decided. Did you quit talking about how you almost die every time yeah. you're on my show? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm like a cat with nine lives. Uh, so, yeah, that ended. I, I never seen one underground shift. Um that I decided that I would not be a coal miner and I went into a totally different field. Uh, but yeah, this it, it's, it's more common than not. I mean, mining is a highly dangerous profession. That's why, you know, it's one of a, you know, you, it's a risk reward profession. Uh, you, you get a, a really nice payday, but you're putting your life on the line and your health on the line. So that's where it comes in. And, you know, it's it's something that people don't understand. 
but once you kind of break it down, it is it is terrifying underground. Just just let me know. I, I will tell you, I have been underground because I've had to do demonstrations for uh, the company I used to work for had um, disaster like shelters. I had to go underground and do demonstrations with them. Being underground is scary because it is a weird, cold silence. Mm-hmm. It is terrifying. Definitely. And like I said, I think we could actually just talk for the next hour about coal mining, but we do need to move on. That's yeah. not what our listeners are here to you know, hear us discuss. So uh, Dr. Winters is examining these corpses. Again, this is very squeamish. We see him actually cutting the ribs out of these bodies. What you have to I'm, do. Yeah. Again, it's like... It, this is nothing if you're used to uh, studies of anatomy and such, but if you get squeamish about blood, do not watch this episode for the love of all that is good and holy and covered in chocolate. Uh, he finds two of the bodies have their organs are drained of blood and it's very weird. And he's starting to wonder what happened when lo and behold, the body of Joe Allen reanimates turns out that when he, the this other guy went out to uh, see a meteor shower he got done infected with an alien parasite like you do of course except he didn't get cool superpowers in a black suit no well so, this is a parasite not a symbiote well you had to say that didn't you i did uh, <laughs> They're fundamentally different relationships between organisms. <laughs> All right. The ca the casual fan will get the reference. <laughs> Not everybody is you, Mr. Wizard. The diehard fans will know that to check off that spot on their bingo card, because it's been yeah. a while since we've made a venom joke. Uh so but Morbius did kind of take its place in that in that lexicon for <laughs> yeah. us, didn't it? Yeah, it did. <laughs> so Again, there is a very long scene of the, the the corpse possessed by this alien talking to Dr. Winters. And I am not going to go through all of it because we do not have time. And there is a lot of details. But the short version is these aliens are blind and deaf. And when they enter our bodies, they can see, they can hear, they can smell, they can taste, all that stuff. And yeah they're parasites they are essentially taking over us because they want our senses um the body of this poor soul who this is actually kind of terrifying he mentions oh he's still alive he's still awake in here he's stop. he can't stop me from cutting my cutting the body open to get my parasite body out of him uh can we just have like five seconds to comment on how terrifying that idea is the idea of you being forced to watch through your own eyes, unable to stop someone slicing up your own body. That's interesting. I, I mean, feel it's like there was one of the, I feel like there was at least one Animorph story that dealt with this. Because this thing's basically a yerk. Yerk. Oh my God. Now I'm having flashbacks to the 90s again. I have oh. not thought of the Animorph series in ages, but you're absolutely right. It's like a yerk. Anyone who's uh, who wasn't around in the '90s, Animorphs was one of the big young adult sci-fi series, which apparently Robert and I were huge readers. Um, but anyway, so you have there's a few moments before the parasite can get into Winter's body, and 
he knows that he's got to think fast. So he blinds himself, stabs his eardrums. Blinds and deafens. Slices <laughs> his uh, artery and then uses the blood to write a message to the sheriff on his body. Essentially saying, play the tape because thank thankfully Winters, you know, did think ahead before things went straight to hell and hit play on his rec uh, tape recorder. And it says, play tape, burn body. And that's where it leaves off. Again, this is a very dialogue-heavy short. There, Most of it is Winter's either talking into... He's either talking to the sheriff, he's talking into his tape recorder, or he's talking to the alien. And it does drag on, but I do give credit that F. Murray Abraham, who we, I don't think anyone here is going to argue, is one of the greatest actors ever. I yes. think he really does a great job with how he's able to hold the scene through the dialogue. I, I actually do like the scenes of him just talking into the tape recorder, discussing his theories is like i wonder if this is what happened i i, I think he carries it yeah yeah th this this episode lives and dies on that uh so he does a good job uh props to the practical effects on the creature uh, they could have easily done this thing as nothing but cgi and while there are cgi components to it, it they they constructed a creature uh that definitely has some alien vibes to it so yeah again the influence there is not a bad one, uh, but that thing's a little bit creepy. And not just in its personality, just in its design. In its personality, yeah, it's, it's pretty darn creepy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, and it it's... This episode, I, I thought, to me personally, it drug a little bit. I think you could have cut down a, uh, some... Take some time out of it uh, because it was so, so heavy on dialogue and stuff. But... It the the dialogue helped carry it along. I think, um, like you said, the the creature, the alien itself. Um, I liked the design of it simply because it wasn't heavily CGI'd. Um, a lot of practical effects went into it, which gave it that more organic feel, rather than you can disconnect. You know, I know, you know myself. I know Robert has the problem with it bad cgi that takes you completely out of a moment i really do <laughs> and uh but you know the practical aspect of it kind of held your attention because that conversation goes on for quite some time because it's like an exposition dump and you know you have to have something visually and to draw you in to pay attention to the little um, the little details that's being uh, dumped onto you and explaining how how we got to this point. So the monster was very well designed. It's probably one of my favorite creature designs of the series. Mm -hmm. So so I liked it. It's, it's kind of fell in the middle uh, ranking-wise. But like I said, I mean, you could probably take about five minutes out of it and improved it a little bit, just kind of streamline the dialogue a little bit more and not be so wordy in some some places but it was fine okay so moving on to the outside this was directed by anna lily uh amrapore if i'm pronouncing her name right uh best known for her feature film debut a girl walks home alone at night self-described as quote the first iranian vampire spaghetti western if you've never seen that movie go out of your way to find it it's really good that's what I've heard. Uh, but unfortunately, I think we were kind of in agreement that this was probably the weakest 
of the uh, yeah. films yeah. in the series. Uh, this is uh, based off of a webcomic by Emily Carroll. Uh, the focus is on Stacy, played by Kate Micucci, who is a... I, I love that Wikipedia calls her a seemingly unattractive and <laughs> awkward woman. Because if you've ever seen Kate Micucci in, in real life, she's adorable. She is the cutest little thing. But they really went out of her way to make her feel unattractive. She's got the worst haircut imagine. She's got uh, one of her eyes is a little off. It uh, looks like that she's got yeah. like a swollen eyelid or whatever she's got kind of uh, bad teeth her teeth are crooked yeah mm -hmm. there's there's a lot that <clears throat> there's a lot that goes into the kind of just posture and the way she carries herself that um there's a little bit extra on her nose like her nose has a little bit of a bridge to it that's uh, not again not natural and it really it really is an interesting kind of observation that when she comes out of the goop at the end and you know, feels pretty they didn't actually change that much yeah, it was like, all about the main thing was really, the haircuts. It's really small. It's really small stuff that gets changed. Mm -hmm. But you now again, her hair gets cut, her teeth get straightened, and her eyes are uh, her eyes don't go cattywampus anymore. And that's it. That's literally it. That's not a whole lot to change about a person, but for some reason, that's enough for her perception and for the perception of those around her to change. Yeah, I, I'm just before gonna... I saw the end, I remember looking at her. It's like, sweetie, you need a haircut, better fitting clothing, and confidence. That's all you need. I'm going to throw gosh. this reference out, and you guys will get it. This this was basically a '90s uh, teen comedy, uh, like she's all that, where you know you just take the glasses off, take the ponytail <laughs> down, and and she's she's beautiful. Uh, I glasses mean, the, off, ponytail down, axe in the husband's back. Yeah, yeah, just standard you know, stuff. Pluck the eyebrows and you're good. Yeah, I mean, you know, <clears throat> get rid of the, the unibrow, put a nice dress on, take down, let the hair down, take off the glasses, you're golden. And that's what this felt like. But there was one really uncomfortable scene. Really uncomfortable scene for me. You want that me to was... do the you want me to do the uh, description of the plot and then yeah. cut to you? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Stacy uh, works at a bank with these, well, they're described as very beautiful women by 80 standards, I guess, but they're insanely yeah. vain, full of themselves, wearing gaudy clothes. You know, they talk about how they're, you know, planning on, you know, getting a facelift and then divorcing their husbands and how they're going to leave them penniless and stuff. It's, it's annoying as hell. But she gets invited to a Christmas party with i guess she's kind of the you know queen bee of the bank who gives all of them a promo box of alo glow uh we all lived through the 80s and 90s we remember those late night infomercials for beauty products <laughs> all kinds of other stuff mm -hmm. when i was i mean people forget how long those things ran like for the the removal of um what do you call it? Like paid, paid programming. Info, yeah, paid programming. The removal the of paid programming from television is a relatively new phenomenon within the history of television. When I was horribly depressed and and suffering from insomnia as a even like in high school or into my early twenties, so you know, we're talking early two thousands, like even toward even like aiming towards the start of the twenty tens, you can find paid programming if you're up late enough and you're bored enough. And you're just desperate for something to 
you know, be there and keep you company, uh, you could find, hey, here's, you know, another infomercial for the uh, your, this cooking buddy that you can get or cooking buddy, weight loss buddy, beauty buddy, organizing buddy. The uh, the cutlery corner there, there there was a there was one that was for a while that was just guys who would sell knives. Mm-hmm. Sham, ShamWow. ShamWow. Um, oh yeah, ShamWow. Um, OxyClean. OxyClean. Uh, yeah. My could... favorite. Like I said, my favorite. Girls Gone Wild. Yeah, <laughs> they would have paid programming for that, depending on where you were. Yep. Yeah. That was yeah. a thing. Yeah. So so the, should they all Free get internet the... days? <laughs> so they all get this promo box of aloe glow it's a this new beauty lotion thing whatever that's sold on late night infomercials and stacy puts it on and finds out gives the poor girl a rash i guess she's got an allergic reaction to it it's a pretty bad rash too like that's not a little rash yeah no her whole skin is breaking on red hives yeah um and she goes home but then she stays up late watching she comes across she watches tv watches the infomercial and i was dying laughing at dan stevens playing the spokesman for alo Clo. this is the guy who played the beast in the live action beauty and the beast movie <laughs> and he just speaks with this inc- first of all he's british but he ups the pompousness of his accent so much he almost changes it from british to that kind of like um scandinavian or eastern european yeah british like there's this weird hybrid accent that is it's a touch british but it leans heavily into what we kind of americanized think eastern europeans and especially like northern eastern europeans sound like Mm -hmm. and it's it's one of the most annoying voices and accents that that exists i don't know why people use it I mean, if you come by it naturally, then fair play. But I don't know why people affect it. Credit to the hair and makeup department as well. Stevens has very bright blue eyes. It's one of you know his most promising characteristics when he does movies. But they also give him bleach blonde hair that looks like it would probably you know break wood if you snapped it over his head. I don't want to know how much hairspray was in that stupid thing. Uh, all of it. Like, yeah, and th- th- this guy makes Homelander's hair look natural. But the way between with the bright blue eyes, the white suit, and the bleach blonde hair, and the way he stares at you through the TV is very unsettling. So credit to how they made him look through that. Yeah. So Stacy goes out, finds the commercial, and she starts, I guess, hallucinating that the aloe glow guy is talking to her. And she's like, I don't want to use this. It gives me a rash. She's like, no, no, that means it's working. Keep using more. So she starts using more her husband, who is the most supporting guy in the world you know very yes. kind um i think he worked for this he's either a copy or works for the sheriff's department um you know I, mean, very... I think they mentioned he was in dispatch it might have been okay. so so either way yeah he works for them i was so worried they were gonna make him a jerk exactly like th- that was my big fear when they once that dynamic start once you, we kind of see oh she's married and here's this guy and i was waiting for him to just be a dismissive uncaring uh you know kind of jerk and thankfully he is not so good on the writing team for that one you created a you created a husband in this scenario who was not a jackass and we could all kind of root for so thank you definitely to the point that her favorite hobby is taxidermy their house is filled with dead animals she gives china a freaking taxidermy duck 
It's a Thank nice you. mallard, yeah. too, by the way. Oh, yeah, it was yeah, very yeah. well done. And he is fully supportive. He walks in, and she's freaking, you know, sewing up this sewing dead animal in their kitchen. And he's like, oh, wow, you're doing a really good job on that. He's so supportive. I love it. And I think that's that adds to this uh, episode. Um, being the supportive husband, because you have such the stark contracts compared to the other ladies in the bank. To have these horrible marriages and talk like talk down about their husband, to have him being a supportive husband and to see where it goes is kind of really, really interesting because you see you see the entire character dynamic change and just the the interactions. Like once she comes down uh, from the bath uh after she 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 does what she does in the most disturbing scene I've ever seen on television. Um, the and you see her slowly start descending into this madness, and like she just jabs that, <laughs> and he's like, "No, you're beautiful just the way you are," and she just like takes that like twelve blade and just shoves it right in the middle of his forehead, and you're like, "Okay." Well, that's not going to kill him. That's that's going to leave a mark. That's going to hurt. That's it's probably not, like that's not going to get through the skull. No, I, it's going to hurt. It's it's going to be. It probably got lodged damage. in the skull. The skull's yeah. thicker than people realize, so yeah. it probably like hit the bone because it's in there pretty deep. But it, it, I don't think it hit any gray matter. No, and then you know, so you know, like okay, that's not going to kill him. <laughs> the poor then, guy, like he doesn't even get mad about. it. He's like, why'd you do that? Oh yeah, I'm bleeding. Yeah. Oh boy. Can you should go I give pull, me a towel, should honey? Should I pull it out? Should I pull it out? Oh yeah, I'm bleeding. It's getting on my glasses. It's, yeah, this, but you know, the husband aspect of this, I liked simply because he was a supportive. He was a stark contrast. Of the the basic husband role that you see set up by the other women. Yeah. So, but yeah. So the Dan Stevens tells her to keep using more of the lotion, even though it it's not getting any better. It's clear. And yeah, her husband keeps telling uh, Keith. He keeps saying it's like, "Honey, you need to stop using this. You need to go to a doctor." And again, he's not belittling her. He is not talking down to her. He's genuinely worried. And he keeps talking about all the things he loves about her, which are inner beauty things. He loves how funny she is, how kind. He loves how great she is with and how much she loves her animals and how good she is at her taxidermy. I especially love the lines like, "You stay up to watch scary movies, even though you can't. You get scared and you look away." It's like, th there's something very cute about that. That reminded me of Mark. <laughs> reminded me of Mark. Oh, just a touch. You mean, so, so at this point, are you saying that, you know, I'm the girl who's going to come in and just ax him in the back of the head one of these days? <laughs> I would not put it past you. There, there may be a psychological break. I've heard some of the arguments. Uh, there may be that psychological break where, where Mark catches an axe to the back of the... No, actually, it would be Mark taking an axe to, to you, wouldn't it? No. No, you're right. Uh, shall we divert the conversation and yeah. discuss which one of the Rattledge and Broadcasting members are most likely to kill our boss? Uh, I, my money's my money's on Robert. 
if we're limiting this to, if we're limiting this to on-air personnel i probably uh, i probably would be the safest bet okay fine good to know least likely jesse oh yeah wait i thought least likely would probably be me actually nah. no oh no. great thanks guys no you you we've seen we've seen it we've seen the anger in your eyes on occasion it's in there yeah we've seen it we've seen you <laughs> We've seen you use caps in in the chat. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so Stacy kills her husband first with a scalpel to that. I will say there's a line here that actually I, I like that they put it in where Keith says you're beautiful on the inside and the outside, and she looks and says, "When you say I'm beautiful on the inside, that means I'm beautiful or I'm ugly on the outside," and that's an argument I've actually seen used a lot of times. Someone says you're so beautiful on the inside, it's like, oh, just say what that actually means. It means I'm ugly. So that that line I thought was actually clever uh, right in, but yeah. So and yeah, we get a very weird scene. All of the hollow glow bottles pop open like. What what side horror movie? The this. stuff. You're going to make me relive this, aren't you? <clears throat> it's a little bit like the stuff. It's a little bit like the eggs popping in the first Ghostbusters movie. And they ooze out and form into a human-like being who kisses Stacy. <laughs> And then goes upstairs after she kills her husband, goes upstairs, basically deforms itself into the bathtub. And Stacy gets in and just gets completely covered by stuff and emerges as we put supposedly now beautiful. Yeah, it's like she shedded her skin and became beautiful. this was, like I said, this was the bottom episode for me. This was the one that almost, I, I got to this one and it, it just felt like I was dra- just trying to drag through it. And I was like, I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going. This is the one that was the hardest for me to push through. And the makeout scene with the lotion was really disturbing to me. Um, and then she came back and she's covered in the lotion. And I, I just wanted to I heard Buffalo Bill in the back of my head going, it puts the lotion on the skin again. And it really disturbed me. So, yeah. How, how, instead of playing a cover of You Sexy Thing, how appropriate would it have been if it was Wild Horses? You didn't oh. that. For me, this was the bottom tier just because I yeah. felt that I, I have nothing against a story like this having a me- being a metaphor and having a message. But I genuinely felt that this was too ham-fisted because it, it's obviously a metaphor for the for the beauty company the, the the world of beauty as it is it's like abandon you know what the the the, ba- the what is your true strength you know to accept shallow beauty. that's what it, it comes across as sacrifice uh, yourself for for beauty is basically what what i got out of it mm-hmm there's i think my biggest problem with this episode is more the pacing this feels like a 40 minute episode that got extended into an hour there's just a lot of shots and a lot of sequences that stretch and drag a little bit longer than necessary so i i do wonder if they were hurting a little bit for runtime because 
it, it just it just kind of drags a bit. Um, credit to the lead actress for, if nothing else in particular, the final bit when she is laughing and kind of everything else fades away and we're just looking at her face for a while. The different emotions she goes through while she's laughing at that at, at the end there, uh, it, it, it's hard to pull that off. So credit to her. So let's go ahead and move on. Uh, this was your favorite, Robert. So I'm actually going to throw uh, the discussion uh, for you to lead on this one. This is Pickman's Model. It's directed by uh, Keith Thomas, uh, best known as directing. Oh God, the remake of Firestarter. Jesus, dude. We're yeah, not, not against I, you. No, no. I was shocked when I, I got done with the. I didn't look up any of the directors beforehand, apart from um, uh, the only one I recognized was Jennifer Kent, who directs Episode Eight. And famously directed the Duck, but we'll get to that. I got done with this episode, and I'm a big fan of the works of H.P. Lovecraft. And Pickman's Model is an interesting little short story. I was curious how they were going to adapt it, because I don't. it certainly doesn't lend itself to something about an hour long. So some of the changes they made worked very well. I was very impressed with this. And I looked up the director afterwards, like, okay, here's all the different directors kind of going through in preparation. Like, he did the 2020, like the most recent Firestarter movie, which Mark and I roundly dumped on. Because As it deserved. Because it sucks. It's a terrible movie. I just, I had to wonder, like, how can you possibly, like, you're good. Like, there's a lot of good stuff here. How'd you do that? It doesn't make sense. Um, so Pickman's model follows primarily... Uh, a, an aspiring we meet first an aspiring artist played by the great ben barnes who is a wonderful actor mm-hmm. sanely good looking too and british <laughs> because apparently that, that? apparently that matters <laughs> um he's an art student at miskatonic university and a very accomplished one uh there's a new student that kind of gets introduced to uh, one of his classes played by crispin glover who is wonderfully creepy. Just the most over-the-top New England accent I have ever heard. There were times I thought he was going full Cockney. It was so strong. It really... um, That's one of the things I loved about this episode in particular. uh, Because we complained about... uh, One of the things we complained about Midnight Club was there's no concession in the language being used to the different time period. And everyone in this episode leans into the, not just New England uh, accent, but they lean into the New England accent and the style of speech that was appropriate for the 1920s, which is a very unique kind of speech pattern. And everyone goes with it, and it works. Again, it works very, very well. So, again, we're introduced to, again, Crispin Glover's character, uh, last name of Pickman, who's, again, another aspiring artist, and he makes disturbing art. Um, Whereas... Ben wow. Barnes is very is a very talented kind of classical artist. Um, Pickman makes you know, very kind of ghoulish, very grotesque, but very powerful pieces. And he kind of, uh, Ben Barnes kind of sticks up for Pickman a couple of times and loosely befriends him. And he, and Pickman shows him some of his uh, unpublished, for want of a better expression, work. One of which... Uh, and this is a really hard thing to convey, and I, I think they did the best job they could here. Uh, one of Lovecraft's themes, of course, is things that shouldn't exist. That's um, what I was saying. I was thinking the same thing. Lovecraft has a tendency to write stuff like, 
a, a horror that drives men mad yeah. and y obviously you can't really describe that so how do you capture that in film and i thought the way they did that especially that scene where they've got the lamp swinging so you've got the light kind of changing on the finish of the paint and and the the it's obviously cgi'd but they do a great job of conveying the impression of the painting moving and again obviously it's an effect where they digitally create something that they can move but they do enough kind of cutting back and forth between the painting and barnes and you've got glover's weird kind of narration going over it and it it genuinely does come across as disturbing and it, it they actually do a decent job of conveying that effect to the audience so ben barnes is again very disturbed by this um we wind up flashing forward several years to Barnes being uh, an accomplished artist and, I believe, a curator at a museum. Yes. Mm -hmm. Museum, and, gallery, something like that. Yeah, he's married. He's got a kid. But he's still kind of haunted by what Pickman showed him and what that has started. Him, that it, that, that kind of pulled the veil back about some of the darker corners of reality. And he can see things now that he does not wish to see. Uh, there are little creatures that will occasionally follow him around or that he catches out of the corner of his eye. And he's very disturbed by all of this. And he's you know, trying to move on with his life. And then Pikmin is set to be featured as part of an exhibition. And this freaks him out, naturally, because, again, he was wildly freaked out by what he saw. Um, Pikmin comes over to his house, meets his wife and kid. Is still creepy because he's Christmas <laughs> Glover. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry, Crispin Glover has two settings, Back to the Future and Creepy. That's it. He's either goofy or he's creepy. And occasionally both. <laughs> Looking at you, Charlie's Angels. <laughs> uh, so Barnes winds up trying to shut down this exhibition. Pickman brings him back to his house and wants to demonstrate some of what he's been working on and where he gets his inspiration from and whatnot. He talks about the history of his family. So we naturally get some of the Atavasta core that Lovecraft was fond of. And he kills Pikmin in what he believes to be self-defense as he's losing his mind a little bit as they go down into this basement. And Pikmin just wants to show him something in a case and Barnes has a gun because of, you know, that actually does make sense. <laughs> and he shoots him. Uh, and kills him, and in response to fresh blood being spilled, out of a kind of collapsed well in the corner of this basement comes a nightmare entity that feeds on human flesh and drags the body back down. Um, Barnes, unhappy, like, I'm done with this, burns the house, Yeah. burns the work, and, is, and goes to the gallery and is getting, nope, we're not doing any of this. Stop it. We're Finds out his, sis his assistant apparently like tried to claw his eyes out. Yeah, he gets to the gallery and we get a little bit of a, a little bit of like event horizon vibes here. Yeah, his assistant clawed out his eyes. His wife and son were stuck staring at one of the paintings for a while and he sent them home, hoping to kind of intercept that before it took hold. Unfortunately, took hold a little bit too much. Um, he goes back home. Finds his wife having gouged her eyes out, peacefully cooking dinner, uh, because there's set to be a feast with some of the, again, the kind of otherworldly eldritch demonic abominations that are trying to get through into the world. And, of course, the main course is going to be their son, whose body is in the oven being cooked. <laughs> I, 
this is my favorite. This does this is one of the better adaptations of Lovecraft's work. Now the original Pickman's model doesn't because it's so much shorter. Um, it deals primarily with an artist that again has kind of the same setup where his his material is very disturbing and very kind of um, you know graphic and gaudy, but uh, the the function the the kind of uh, logic uh, that drives the horror in this one is Pickman's not pulling these things from his imagination. He has a trap door in his basement that leads down to the underground tunnels of the troglodytes, and he feeds them corpses and then draws what he sees. So his that's some of what gives his material its power. And that story ends with Pickman being consumed by them while they're down there because of reasons. And again, it's left much more eerily. This one dovetails a little bit more into some, again, some of the more supernatural stuff. Um, a little bit more the, again, the kind of cosmic <clears throat> horror element of it. And it's carried by some genuinely great acting. And Ben Barnes is a fabulous actor. Crispin Glover is a very good actor, especially in this kind of role. Uh, everyone commits to what's going on here. It's creepy. It does a great job of conveying madness to the viewer in ways that I think a lot of movies that touch on the same stuff struggle to, but it does a really good job with that. Uh, I have very, very few complaints about this episode. This was a home run for me. Yeah, this was, this was on my top, my upper tier. It wasn't my favorite, but it was a, it was, it was in my top three um, simply because of the, the aesthetics, the, the tone of everything. Um, and the stylization of how it was conveyed was really uh, appeasing to me. And that's something that I'm really a stickler for. Uh, I, I can watch a movie and, you know, if the, the tone's out of whack, it kind of takes me out of the moment. Um, I, I, I'm really one that goes with settings and stuff to, like, be uh, fully immersed into it. This I was I was invested. Um, the ending was something that completely caught me off guard. I love um, that shot too, the way they shoot the ending sequence because yes. our, our camera is set inside the oven, and so the light that comes in is from Ben Barnes lowering the oven door and, and all the we, flames at the bottom. Yeah, very and, symbolic. And all we see is the silhouette of what's of the the body. So always use like the head mostly. Yeah, it's like it's pretty much just like the head in the yeah. oven. Yeah, and it's it's more horrifying because it leaves so much of everything else that's in there to your imagination. It's all in darkness, but there's also no question about what it is. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and like I said, the the ending was a home run for me, uh, mainly because that last shot, that last sequence is he he's coming in and his wife his wife is baking dinner. And, you know, he's very consoling and everything and being like, you know, just carrying on a normal conversation like you would. And then you see, you see the reveal and you kind of, it, it, it's like one of those kind of takes you a step back and then it just progressively gets worse until really, you see that last shot. Mm -hmm. There's a really nice kind of subtle thing they do with the audio in that sequence because she's uh, cutting, she's cutting up vegetables and whatnot on a cutting board. Well, I think it's supposed to sound like vegetables, but when they well, pan it, or you see blood oozing, and I actually got a color out of space reference there with the mother when she chops off her fingers. Yeah, that definitely happened in the in the movie there. Um, yeah, but she's she's chopping, 
and when she stops, when you see her arms stop moving, you still hear that. You still hear the sound, and that's uh, and that's the blood that's kind of running down her face from her uh, removed yeah. eyes mm-hmm. that is dripping down and pooling at her feet. That that like that is one of those rare scenes that it starts out looking so normal, but you know something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, and you you can't yeah, put your like finger on it until you rewatch around, it. You're like. There's a reason she's not turning around. There's a reason she's not saying something. What the hell's going on? Right. All right, we're going to move on to Dreams in the Witch House. This was directed by Catherine Hardwick, also known as the director of 13, Lords of Dogtown, The Nativity Story, and the first Twilight movie. Which kind of surprised me that this this was one of those... Well, look, at, if, if you're <laughs> curious about why a talented director was on that, um, feel free to look up some of the some of the backstory and some of the behind the scenes stuff about the about that. The first Twilight movie, there was a pretty serious power struggle between the director and Stephanie Myers that was kind of going on for a lot of that one. Yeah. So, uh, Jason, you said this one was your favorite. Uh, this is also based on a short story by H.P. Lovecraft, like the previous one. Uh very this one's a lot looser in adaptation this yeah is like the name and the fact that there's a house like, all right i am going to, to throw it to you then i want you yeah, to go ahead this... and leave the discussion on this one all right so this one this one was um my favorite simply because like i said the aesthetics and stuff uh you find you you're um introduced to this set of twins uh very early on uh boy girls twins and the the sister has died and he is having a conversation with her, her spirit uh, per se. And she could see her body. And uh, all of a sudden you see something, grab her, drag her away. And she gets dragged into this forest. Then you fast forward uh, several years and we get Ron Weasley um, who does a absolute phenomenal job in this. Um, getting, getting in there. Uh, Rupert Grant, uh, which is, like I said, most famously known as Ron Weasley uh, from the Harry Potter series. Uh, he has basically abandoned everything in life to try to find a way to bring his sister back. He has gone. He's part of the paranormal society that he's trying to convince that there's a way to bring back. He ends up in a pub late one night talking to a, uh, a gentleman he kind of overhears the conversation, you know. He's kind of he's kind of on that fringe of is he, is he grounded in reality or is he, you know, is he completely off his rocker? So uh, the gentleman says, you know, I can do this. It takes him outside. They meet out in the alley. Uh, presents an option of some psychedelics to be able for him to quote unquote walk through worlds. And find his sister and bring her back. Um, it's called uh, Black Gold, I think, is what the. It was something the, gold. Liquid. Liquid gold. Liquid gold. Liquid gold. Uh, thank you, Robert. Uh, so he takes this hallucinogen. He goes to this other world, finds his sister, and the one rule is you do not create ripples. Ripples are the basically. Um, anything changes. You can go, but do not change anything. It has dire effects. So on his, he goes, he sees it, he contacts his best friend, his partner, 
Um, and he tries to convince him that, you know, that they have to do this. They have to do this. They found He found a way. He's going to bring her back. The friend thinks he's absolutely, finally has absolutely gone into madness, denies it, tells him there's no way, tells him he's crazy, which leads to him getting kicked out of the paranormal society. So he goes back and does it again. This time he sees a painting, um, a lady make, doing a painting, and she runs away. He sees the painting. It's of the witch house that we become familiar with later on. And he sees his sister. They bond. Um, he's coming. He gets woken up, and as in Nightmare on Elm Street, if, you, if you're holding something, when you wake, you bring it back into the normal world. Uh, he has a piece of her nightgown. Because she's still she's still the same age and wearing the same attire that when she passed away, so this convinces him even more. He seeks out this witch house, goes to stay. Some creepy, creepy, creepy shit happens. Uh, he's laying there, you know. He's examining the house. If the second episode didn't give you a thing for rats, this one might. No kidding. Yeah, this is this is where yeah, this is where I thought the second episode would go. Um, so you're introduced to the the witch and a minion. Uh, I'm gonna say it's a minion because I think it's familiar. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, and you're introduced to this witch, which is basically uh, a female group that has went evil. Um. And she is trying to get brought back. She was the, we come to find out that she had died in the house and she's actually in the attic with her familiar minion, which is a rat with a human face that absolutely horrified me and will be the reason I can't sleep tonight. Because we said rats are, are fear inducing. A human face on a rat is nightmare inducing. So we we go through this. You Oh, but he's got such a cute little accent, hadn't he? <laughs> so I believe that was DJ Quails doing the voice of the rat. Yeah. That is that is crazy. Um you know, he gives you the crazy eyes from the new guy. Um but you know fast forwarding through that but you find he sees this picture he finds the, uh, he goes across, I think it's across the hall. And the artist is actually with the painting across the hall. He um, lets, after he brings his sister back, they go across the hall. They find her because this witch is now chasing them because she wants brought back. And the key to this, they cut, you later find out, is twins. Um, one that has passed, one that is living. And this is key and it, it kind of goes start spiraling to this really weird um psychedelic like horror in my, my eyes because it's the the witch is brought back when he brings the sister back he brings the witch back with him and the familiar that we later find out and the artist just like in the previous, her paintings predict moments of the future. And she tells him, you're going to die before sun comes up. They think they run to this church. They're, you know, they think they banished this witch. Um, 
there's a struggle. The witch tries to kill, kill him. The sister shows up, as you do, stabs the witch in her eye with her wand, with the elder wand. Um, she dies. They think they're all in the clear. And then the, the greatest part of this is they go up to the attic. They find the witch's body, and they find this case. This case has the familiar, which is the rat with the human face. And you're you're like, okay, this is weird. And why this is going on, old um, the uh, Rupert, which I can't remember his name. Walter. Right Walter is laying in bed and has a chest bursting scene on level with Alien. Of this rat who has been restored to the mortal world. And the, the thing runs away. They, they think they chased it away. They're trying to get uh, a doctor because he has this huge gaping hole in his chest. Of course you he know. can be saved. Yeah, and this is the, the late 1800s, early 1900s. I think it was like 1920s. Maybe in that in that 1900 1920s era there, that you know medicine can heal a gaping hole in your chest. But the the most interesting part of this is when the familiar runs away, they leave the room. You just see him reappear, crawl back up the bed, go back into his chest, and basically assume his body as a basically a. <laughs> a reborn um, abomination because he says I can use the body now because he was never using it because once he lost his sister he basically gave up on life and you just see this total change in the demeanor once he leaves the house he finds something he, he puts on an ascot to cover up the gaping hole in his chest and he goes out into the world to create havoc and it just leaves you on this note, uh, like an unanswered question of like, what comes next? And I love that about this story. That's why I bumped it up to my favorite. And I'm curious what you guys have to say about it. I mostly just couldn't stop laughing at the fact that it's like, oh, Ron Weasley can never escape magic wands and rats. He's cursed. <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. Yeah, so, you know, yeah, Rupert Grint uh, is really, of, really great in this. Revenge of Scabbers. <laughs> yeah, no, Rupert Grint is great in this. Y you feel his passion, his fear. The he, he cut the the. I, I love the opening scene, or not the opening scene, but the scene where he and his uh, friend are watching uh, this this medium, and he thinks for a split second it's real, and then he goes walks back and it's like of course it's fake but he has this desperation to his performance you know it, it, you see this in so many people that it's like they've lost everything and they're willing to believe what anyone will sell them if it means they can find the answer they're looking for and he plays that really well you feel so genuinely sorry for him he's not an idiot you know he's he, he's a little foolish but he's he's traumatized by what happened to his sister he's never been able to heal from his grief and he carries that weight with him and rupert grant gives that performance so well yeah there's a 
there's a somewhat heartbreaking moment in this in this episode. I think it's the second time he goes back to see his sister, and he just and she just asks him something kind of innocuous about his life, like, you know, it's been so long. Did you ever get into the, you know, the sympathy? Symphony. Yeah, because he was a piano was a player, pianist. and yeah, it's like, did you join the symphony? And he basically says, "I've stopped playing when you died." And it's just this really nice little moment of, yeah, I he he kind of has to realize, you know he realizes the cost of everything he's done. Like I gave up everything that I wanted to do in my life to chase this. And it, it's a nice little reminder to all of us who um, get stuck in grief from time to time. You know, if you could talk to that person again, which is one of the things we all kind of desire out of that, you know, what would you say? Like, you know, they'd ask about what you've been doing. And if, you don't have a good response to that. <laughs> you know, that that's a pretty damning indictment. And, and so you did get that nice little moment there. I like the creature design on the witch. Uh, I thought that was you know, again well enough. I mean, we could, you know we joke about it you know being Groot like, but uh, and it is. But I, there's enough the there's enough um, root and other kind of arborist imagery that goes into Hot this root. one root. The the eyes the eyes is what haunted me of this of this um, creature and and then yeah we already mentioned it enough but yeah the the design on our little rat fellow with the human Jenkins face Brown I I think he was actually called Brown Jenkins in the uh, original short story they changed it to Jenkins Brown might have been again the. the the short story in question bears very little resemblance to this story. Although the rat humanoid creature bursting out of his chest, I think was in the short story. I'd have to double check, but again, that might've been. Cause I know the character was in the short story. Cause they actually do. They talk about finding his skeleton. And now that's on apparently on display in Mescatonic university. <laughs> Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, they've got. Uh, that's one of those uh, universities. You got to be careful if you decide you want to go there because they got some stuff. I want a shirt that says I went to the Miskatonic University Art School. Now, <laughs> it's like I didn't know they had an art school at Miskatonic. Now I want to uh, wear that shirt. And say that's where I went to art school. <laughs> I've got one that is um, Miskatonic University alumnus. Well, what does your shirt that you're wearing now say? Again, uh, this is the Esoteric Order of Adventure of Got Explorers. It. With, uh, what's the bottom thing on this say? Expeditions from the South Pacific to the Antarctic. Not coming back from the Antarctic, that's for damn sure. Again, well, again, Cthulhu's Island is in the South Pacific, in a very specific location, and the Antarctic is where Shoguths are, uh, exist. So, yeah, just stay away from those places. Why does it not surprise me that you know where Cthulhu's Island specifically is? It was. You want to know what's really kind of freaky about that? You you might remember this, but a few years ago they had that weird phenomena that was observed in the ocean, uh, the audiological phenomenon. They called it the bloop. Yeah. They traced that thing's origin to relatively close to where Lovecraft fictionally set the island of Rilia. <sighs> I'm just saying. Cthulhu, if you're out there, could you just show up and start the freaking apocalypse already? We're getting tired of waiting. Uh, again, 
weirdness, but yeah, that's me. But yeah, there, there. We relative, we do know relatively speaking where that is because uh, Lovecraft had the coordinates kind of set down. And it, if you look at where it is in reality, there's nothing there. It's just empty ocean. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to episode seven: The Viewing, directed oh. by Anos Cosmatos, known for Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow. I also like to call this short. For the love of God, take this man's star filter away. No, no, no. It, it it was entirely necessary here for a very, here's the only reason this this episode works there's one reason because it leans so heavily into being a 70s movie and I, I again I don't just mean a movie set in the 70s like this thing looks they change the aspect ratio it's got the grainier effect on it you've got it's got enough the um, music so much of this the, screamed Kubrick I mean uh, this was very grindhousey. It's got enough lens flare to make J.J. Abrams happy for a couple of minutes. <laughs> I said the exact... I said, watching this, I'm like, did the dude just watch the, the 2009 Star Trek and say, I could top that? But all of this is very... All this very much like... Again, this is not just a movie set in the 70s. This tries to be a movie that looks like it was made in the 70s. And that's what... like That whole aesthetic, that whole commitment to it is what makes this thing work. More so than just about than certainly anything else that goes on in it, because apart from that, apart from that kind of gimmick, there's not a lot here. See, I have minor astigmatism. It really only pops up at night when I'm driving. But watching all that lens flare of every single light was giving me the worst headache i kept rubbing my eyes like because like you do when you're driving and you start seeing the stars around the yeah. light poles oh my god it was uh, it was so headache inducing but yeah this is a very bizarre short because not really a lot happens uh this is an original story from uh, cosmatos and aaron stewart on uh, we have four guests who are invited to the home of a wealthy recluse, Lionel Laster, played by Robocop himself, Peter Weller. Always fun to see him on screen. Uh, we have a astrophysicist named Charlotte. We have an author named Guy. We have a psychic named Targ. And we have a musician uh, named Randall. Nice to see Diebeard back. Oh, Steve. Yeah, Steve Agee. Yeah. The, uh, from Peacemaker. Oh my god, I can't believe I didn't recognize him. <laughs> Take the glasses off and suddenly everything changes. Yeah. Maybe it's because this one he has all the confidence in the world and his dye beard. He just is so... I'll give actually credit to his ability as an actor then for playing those two characters so differently. Because his role here as the author is nothing like dye beard. Not a darn thing. Yeah, so these four uh, people are picked up in a van by uh, this other guy who they take to this house, which has very unique architecture, never seen before by anyone else. Uh, Lassiter tells him, like, apparently the guy who built the house, the guy who played, who composed the music that they're listening to, works solely for him now. He talks about how he collects people. For him, it's not just that they're exclusive. It's that they're his. And they will never create for anyone else ever again. And we Yeah, get, you know, like the super wealthy do. And we get a very weird scene. I did not get how this worked. But they sit down and all four of their favorite drinks 
are waiting there to the point that Randall, um, who's played by Eric Andre, who I thought did a really good job with this, says it's his favorite flavor tea. It's his favorite temperature of tea. And it's his favorite amount of honey in the tea. It's like there's specific and then there's this. And they never explain how Lassiter was able to get exactly what they would want for well, their drinks. Well, the, how I took that is these people were specifically chosen. So he'd done his research. Uh, he was a florant. Uh, I can't say it. Uh, a wealthy individual that is not used to being told no. Uh, so he'd done his due diligence. He probably hired a... Uh, a private investigator, because these people were specifically chosen to be there. There wasn't just randomness, that they were specifically chosen to be a part of this. So I think that's it, and it was kind of the part um, for them to get their comfort level for what's about to happen. And so he, he wanted to make sure that he had everything in place to make them as comfortable as possible with what was about to be discussed so yeah they get their favorite drinks then they pass <sighs> around a J, and then they do what guy refers to base as cocaine. base cocaine <laughs> yeah i feel like that I, okay this might be this is a really obscure reference but um that's the nickname for a very specific uh, utility item in the first darkest dungeon game and like the most the third expan the second expansion um, you get crystals that are from a uh, a comet that is actually like home to some terrible entity that will have because Dark Ascension is very Lovecraftian inspired. But what this this item in fear, it, what it does is you consume it and it refreshes limited use um, abilities. And you so can it's use the this spice from Dune, <clears throat> something like that. And you can cheese a few different fights with this, including the final boss fight, actually. <laughs> But the, the joke is, you know, you get you have exhausted your usage and then you do space cocaine and suddenly you're energized again. So, but yeah, it's basically like high quality Peruvian cocaine mixed with something that this this uh, doctor who's with them, played by uh, Sofia Botella, puts on top of it that she says she developed and so much of this movie is just these six people sitting in one of those sunken conversation pits that were all the rage yeah. in the 70s, which frankly, yeah. I think need to come back because I've always thought those were cool as hell. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, The ability to very quickly get into cover if someone starts shooting does seem to be uh, useful. <laughs> Way to completely dampen the conversation, Robert. Hey, look, I, see, I, I look for cover wherever I go. What do you want me to say? Gears of War taught me that. Lord. So, yeah, so they get their favorite drinks. They're high on weed. They're high on Coke. They're just talking. <laughs> they're not even talking about anything specific. They're just talking. There's a brief bit where uh, the doctor mentions that she worked for Momar Gaddafi. And, but that doesn't go anywhere. And then finally... Lassiter says he's there to show them something and he leads into this other room where there's this statue stone thing. Meteor, chrysalis, not quite sure. <laughs> no idea. And 
he says, and yeah, they ask all these questions about it. And I guess it reacts to their presence and it starts. Well, look, Eric Andre blows smoke in its face and it dec- it takes offense. As you do. I mean, I unless would. you're Johnny Knoxville. And confirmed space aliens, not Johnny Knoxville. I need to start watching reboot. I'm pretty good in that. So it, it starts emitting this noise and then suddenly we get half scanners half raiders of the lost ark and um all kinds of appropriately horrifying very and uh the astrophysicist and the musician managed to get on and flee uh last the rock, the rock crumbles and orange goo comes out mm-hmm. with tentacles Yep. I thought those were horns at first until they started moving. Yeah. They, they, they had this, the, when they merged at the top, they looked very demon's horns-esque. And then they quickly turn into tentacles and then the goop jumps on him and it turns him into nemesis, basically. From <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. There is no other way to put it. Second and... Resident Evil co- uh, reference. I love it. And it just sort of ends with the monster getting loose in 70s somewhat city i don't know where the hell these people are and randall and charlotte just getting away in i'm assuming that was lasser sports car uh just both just being like what the hell just happened back there and it ends yeah um if you've seen mandy and if you haven't please do it's utterly bonkers um there's a scene where Nicolas Cage and another guy sword fight with chainsaws. Just as a just to give you a taste of the insanity of that particular film. It is If it was oh, any other actor than Nicolas Cage, I would have said, What? <laughs> Nicolas Cage, yeah. That sounds like actually interesting. It is um it's a kind of psychedelic acid heavy metal horror. Uh it, it's out there. It, you yeah. watch that, and it's not surprising why he would do Color of Out of Space. Yep. Uh, very, very different. Uh, I really appreciate that movie. so much. Like, that, that movie has aged very well, the more I think about Color Out of Space. but Oh, I uh, love that movie. I got to see that on an, a very small indie theater. And not going to lie, the scene with the, the son and the mother merging together. <laughs> oh, my God, that scared the shit out of me. Um, but... Yeah, again, I, I think this movie lives and dies by the gimmick of trying to appear as a relic of the 70s. Um, the acting's all fine enough, but again, there's not a lot that goes on here until the end when things go way crazy for just a little bit. Uh, I kept waiting for there to be a giant car crash to kill the astrophysicist and the musician at the end. I just, I, It's that kind of movie. You kind of expect that. So... This almost feels like this one might get, if they do a second season of this anthology, and they should, for the record. Yes, I don't know who needs to hear this. We want this to come back. We want this to be an annual Halloween tradition. This almost feels oh, like yeah. if, the, if any of these are going to get a kind of almost direct sequel, this is the one that might do it. As long like as they we, take away his lens flare. We we might get more of this uh, kind of direct or direct slash indirect story because... Uh, this was very open-ended, more so than any of the others. Open-ended, 
ends i don't call it open ending i or open-ended i just feel like it just it stopped it doesn't feel like there was yeah like, it, was it, it doesn't feel like there was a giant question mark at the end going like what will happen next it literally feels like we're out of budget cut yeah because it is like with a rolling blackout it's it's set in california uh and it's set like it just ends with him coming out of a storm drain and it looks like a rolling blackout happens. Well, and he has he has those weird crash. electrical powers. So he comes out and is like near a, a power station, I think, and he kind of like zaps it. So he's electro. Something like that. Okay. He's gooey electro. More charisma gooey. than Jamie. Much more charisma than Jamie Fox, though. And, and probably he, better. He, he's electro after a trip to Orange Julius. Okay. Yeah, that tracks. Okay, so yeah, my or the final one here is The Murmuring. This is directed by Jennifer Kent, uh, best known for uh, her directorial debut, The Babadook. Uh, this one follows a pair of married ornitholog- ornithologists. I'm just, I'm just bird watchers. Them, yeah, I'm just going to call them bird scientists because that's what they are. I am not going to trip over this word countless times. Ornithologists. <laughs> Bird people, bird scientists. They're, they're engaged in ornithological studies. I hate you so much. <laughs> anyway, so I love, uh, can I say I love dinosaurs as a kid? You get more familiar with lat with how to pronounce Latin stuff that way. Fair enough. Okay, so they're doing a uh, scientific study on bird murmurations. Uh, they are also recovering from grief as we find out uh, progressively. We start at the beginning. We find out that they have gone through some a horrible horrible tragedy and we find out later uh they lost their daughter ava uh they never say how old ava was we have a brief scene of her with a baby i don't know if that means that ava died as a baby or that was just you know what she saw because these two are a little bit older so i would assume ava was a little older when she died but either way so they go to this uh, remote country home uh they think they're just going to an island and they're going to sleep in their tents but it turns out there's a home there and the um the groundskeeper has arranged for them to stay there and it's a really nice house but things start to get weird and we see uh nancy one of the bird scientists uh, starts seeing and hearing a crying boy and she can't figure out exactly what's going on and then she starts seeing and hearing a woman screaming what have you done and she tries to talk about it with her husband who doesn't hear or see this and it's clear that Jennifer Kent has a method with her filmmaking that we saw with the Babadook. And we see it here. The idea of using the supernatural to explore and come to terms with your grief. Yes. It's very heavy in this one. Very heavy. But it was also very symbolic in the Babadook and what that creature represented. And we get that here because Nancy, it, you know, Nancy and her husband fight so much uh, when she she's trying to get him on her side about what's going on and he quickly points out she's never really fully grieved for their daughter you know she doesn't want to talk about it she seems she's very closed off she's holding uh you know what's holding all this sadness inside and i'm not going to say that's right or wrong everyone grieves differently so it's very rough for her and she finally gets some closure when she embraces the ghost of the boy who's very scared his mother drowned him in a bathtub and then she killed herself and she's able to help the ghost of the boy essentially come out of the darkness 
as it were. I guess he kind of finds peace. And this allows her to finally open up to her husband and say she wants to talk about their daughter and what happened. So this yep. is not a classic. Is This is not scary on the same level as the other um, shorts that we have seen on this show. Uh, it's not scary even uh, the way the Babadook was. The Babadook uh, is a if you've never seen it, that, like watch that in the dark the first time through, it will scare the crap out of you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, th and, this is more... and and don't get too attached to the dog. It breaks one of the few cardinal rules of horror uh, movies. Yeah, yeah, it does. That's not just a rule for like that's not just a rule for horror movies. Like I think one of my favorite gags, I forget where I heard this. No, I remember. This is in a book. It's in an Iris Johansson novel. I believe it's called the um I believe it's called The Ugly Duckling, actually, if my memory serves. I haven't read the thing in years. I hate my memory sometimes. Um, a hitman is scolded pretty violently by his employer because he killed a child in the course of executing a job. And his employer tells him, you were in America. You went to America to kill people. You don't kill kids and you don't kill dogs. They won't care. Just don't do those two things. The, the kid was not the target. It was uh, collateral damage. And he is, again, he is violently kind of, you're in the United States. Like other places in the world, these rules are not the same. The United States, you don't kill kids, you don't kill dogs. And you're good. I've seen a meme where they talk about people who watch horror movies or just violent movies in general. It's like watching a hundred people get hacked to death with a saw. It's like no big deal. Sees a dog get kicked, you bastard! Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like yeah, we have our limits. Well, look, there's a reason we all are on John Wick's side. Yeah. Season four or chapter four, uh, John Wick trailer dropped today. Looks good. I am. Um, we get to see Keanu Reeves fight Donnie Wen. I'm geeking. Uh, yeah, that'll be something. Um, this movie is, a, it's a lot more kind of a classic um, gothic ghost story in that, in, in its structure. Uh, full credit in the world to both Essie Davis, who I think uh, a lot of us you know, kind of became exposed to during the Babadook, but uh, Andrew Lincoln bringing his more dramatic chops here. If you're only familiar with him from The Walking Dead, uh, he gets to show off a little bit more of what he's capable of here. And you know what? I'm credit to this entire series for giving us another instance of the husband not being a raging jackass. Yeah, he is incredibly supportive. It's clear that he has processed his grief and he's ready to move on. And again, everyone grieves differently. We all grieve at different stages and we all grieve on different, you know, periods of time. And he wants to open back up to his wife and he wants things to try to get back to the way they are there's a really adorable scene where he puts on some music and he starts trying to dance with her <laughs> you know and they're, they're, these two are so freaking cute together yes she doesn't want to dance and he you could tell he's frustrated but at no point does he like threaten to leave her or belittle her he talks to her and he's mad at her about yeah, what happened like, what but he never talks down to her the scene where he says, you know, I want this to work. It's genuine. Like he's not, he's not saying if you don't, you know, if you don't move on, I'm going to leave you. It's more, we've been here for a while and this is not sustainable. And he's just acknowledging that like, we can't keep doing this. And so what are we going to do here? I, I still love you. I still want this to work. 
and he does he kind of leaves the ball in her court in that respect but it's never again like when he wants to be you know physically intimate with her uh it's not again this is not the kind of what would in other ways come across as like creepy or pushy you know he absolutely he when she stops things he respects that yeah he's but and his frustration is not selfish like he's not frustrated because i'm not getting what i want he's frustrated for their relationship and he's frustrated for her like he kind of knows that like we you do need to grieve somehow and we've reached a very unhealthy point in this where you are stuck and whatever comes next okay but you can't stay stuck like this and it it's a very human thing and their last fight like when she kind of goads him into being mad at her uh again the acting from both parties is very very good you get a couple of decent jump scares. I mean, the ghost mother coming out of the dark and uh, from the dark doorway, it's somewhat predictable, but it's still somewhat effective. And it, it's more, uh, again, this is a lot more kind of a trad. Most ghost, most ghost stories, the good ones are tragedies uh, at their core. Right. And this one leans into that uh, fairly effectively. So uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised Jennifer Kent doesn't do more like, because again, for those of us that saw the Babadook and whatnot, we she just hasn't done a whole lot since. She did something somewhat recently that's a bit more of a period piece about uh, one of the slave one of the slave islands in Australia. Uh, let's see here, the Nightingale. Yeah, which yeah. is that's something that is that is not for the faint of heart. Um, that's a lot that's not really um there's not really a supernatural aspect to that a lot of the horror and that is just hey let's kind of accurately describe things and the uh the effects they have on people <laughs> in this time and place and yeah that'll do it but she again she hasn't do gone on to do a tremendous amount um this is uh this is a solid episode it's a strong way to end this it's a strong way to end season one and like we said, this is season one. I can't find anything that says they're doing a second season. Uh, I really hope that this becomes a October uh, staple, yeah. that Netflix does a handful of these <clears throat> with a bunch of different directors. We've seen, Like I said, we got some amazing work from very talented directors, uh, many of whom you know we've seen a few things from, a handful we've never seen anything from. And I really want this to continue. I think this is a very, very clever idea. Um, and Netflix, set whoever done Midnight Club down. Let them watch this <laughs> and show them this is what everybody expected out of Midnight Club. Uh, this yeah. last episode. Lanigan, we've warned you. You met, you can mess up 90s uh, young, young adult adaptations. You mess up Edgar Allan Poe and there will be hell to pay. Yeah. yeah. The, the best part of this in was children are creepy children are scary that's why I, I would really like a really good adaptation of children of the corn to come out uh oh come on you, you you don't get down with outlander we have your woman oh god no oh come on come the on. guy who played isaac is freaking amazing i love him he still does horror conventions yeah yeah but the original Children of the Corn, it worked because children are creepy. Ch children are scary. 
That's why Village of the, That's more why Village of the Damned works. Bear in mind, the original much more so than the remake. Right. Um, I think the, well, I, I, the I remake. I think the only thing the remake the has first. going for it is isn't Christopher Reeve in the remake? Yeah. That that. Oh God, that's the one with Christy Alley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like okay, Christopher Reeve was a very good actor. Like everyone remembers him as Superman. Christopher Reeve was a legitimately talented actor. I still loved his appearance on The Muppet Show when he got to do Hamlet. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> it was hilarious. Like, oh, you'll have to wear tights. Wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> uh, uh, he, I mean, he graduated from Juilliard with Robin Williams, if memory serves. Uh, they but, were very good friends. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the the aspect of... Um, and this is something that worked for Haunting the Hill House, too, is the the creepy kid aspect uh, had my had amber on the edge of her seat where she has told me and texted me multiple times that she would not be going to sleep tonight and i am well uh she is thankful that i will be staying up with her to which i replied nope i'm taking my medicine you're on your own oh ow dude <laughs> uh as she said haha you're recording i've hid your medicine i said i hate you <laughs> um, so so, bravo honey so, bravo i applaud so, yeah. you so <laughs> one way to another that that's that's a look into what i have to look forward to tonight healthy but, marriages the other hallmark of the right Legend broadcasting network yeah <laughs> yeah but um Single, this, for the record this this was a good note to end on because it it, it kind of gave you that plateau of just bringing you down, giving you that nice plateau, feel good retribution story. Uh, and didn't like, you know, because I felt like every episode you was on a roller coaster. Some episodes had you really high, and then you had that log going down, and then, you know, you popped up. And, and there was, and this was one really even kill one that we ended on that I think was the right decision. Because it, it, you take away something, a human feeling of grief and how people process it and how different, the different stages of grief happen. Uh, I lost my mother recently. And one of the things that I've been told is, well, you, you haven't grieved. And my response is, how can you tell me how I feel? And how can you tell me how I'm uh, I'm dealing with stuff? You don't see things from my perspective. You don't you don't look at the world through, through the eyes I do. Um, and I haven't fully grieved. I'm still working through that. Uh, hence, you know, medication and therapy. Uh, but it, it's it's the fact that losing a you're as a parent, you're never supposed to bury your child. That is something that weighs on any parent's mind um even if you have fur babies uh it weighs on you you if you lose an animal that's a part of your family that's still a part of you that's going to be missing and a lot of people may look down at that i don't i'm a very predominant fur baby uh family and i i respect people that have fur babies because they are integrated into your life uh, for the for a little bit, my youngest boxer was bought for me for my grieving process. That's how we ended up with her. 
for me to cope with the loss of my mother. So dealing with that as a parent is put you in a weird flux, like a uh, purgatory of emotions. Some people never get out of that. Some people hold on to that and they don't know how to process it until years much later in life. And I think that's what hit home with this and why I think this was the right episode to end on because it's something death is inevitable. It's something that we all have to deal with. And it's something that we all can relate to. And I think that this was very well done to show it's okay to take your time with the grief that you carry. And I'll shut up now because that was a little long-winded. Very well done. Thank you for the insight. You did mention about how good it was they ended with this. And I think you're right. An anthology series has to have the right mix of their story styles they have to have everything it's like a mixtape you have to start out strong but you can't stay strong the whole time and then go low just at the end because it peters out this series did a very good job especially if you binge the whole thing uh, front to back like i know a lot of us did um i got through two i got it through it in two settings would have been yeah, a whole one but i needed sleep and I think they did a very good job organizing it. Again, this is something that I think we all would love to have come back to Netflix every October. This should be a new uh, Halloween standard. Uh, Guillermo del Toro was great. Uh, I really enjoyed having him come on and introduce each uh, bit. Again, very, very Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, very Night Gallery-esque. Yeah. Uh, which apparently he's a fan of Night Gallery. So kind of to makes the shock sense. Of, to the shock of no one. Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> So really enjoyed this. We really hope this gets picked up first. Again, I don't even know if I want to call it season two, but just we want it to come back. We want this to be a Halloween standard. I would love for us to be talking about the next wave of the Cabinet of Curiosities in 2013 or 2023. I was going to say 2013. We're traveling back in time. I love it. That was a Freudian slip. I was looking at something else on my screen. Hey, <laughs> Sorry. We, if we go back 10 years... We go back 10 years, we all carry the knowledge we have now, we're good. I know things I can bet on, and I would right. I would uh, try to lose that 20 pounds a lot faster than I did. <laughs> okay, so uh, if there's, does anyone want to talk about, was there anything we missed in any of these uh, stories? Is there anything else we want to talk about? Um, I think I've covered everything I've wanted to say about the series. No, I think I've had everything. Um, again, the they collected a pretty good assortment of directors for this. Um, I think the only little bit of trivia that might uh, be relevant to mention, at least, is um, uh, Cosmatos is the son of the guy who allegedly directed Tombstone. I say allegedly because if you know the stories about that particular filming process, that movie's basically ghost directed by Kurt Russell. <laughs> it's kind of funny you actually bring that up because I just had a funny Tombstone story. It's on Have YouTube yet. movies at the moment. Hmm? Tombstone, it's on YouTube movies at the moment for free. Yeah, so. it is. I um I had never seen that before Friday night. 
Great. Really? That's a yeah. great that's a great oh, western yeah. action okay. movie. No, I think you guys caught my I was supposed to go see Voltaire in concert, but mm-hmm. my my date, my one of my best friends, poor guy had food poisoning. <laughs> so yeah, so we skipped the concert and I stayed at his place with him uh to help him feel better. And we're watching a bunch of movies and everything. And yeah, he mentions tombstones on YouTube movies. I'm like, oh, I've never seen it. He's like, what the hell? So we watch it. And yeah, amazing movie. Two days later, I'm at the post office mailing stuff. And one of the clerks, you guys know, I'm at the post office weekly. So the yeah. clerks there know me. And she mentions like, oh, yeah, you mentioned the concert. How, how was it? And I said, oh, no, we didn't end up going. And I tell what happened. It's like, yeah, no, we stayed in and watched Tombstone. It was my first time seeing it. The second clerk literally drops her packages and she's like, you've never seen tombstone before (laughs) it's her favorite movie and before i know it half of the post office because i got a big line of people behind me start going in the freaking doc it's an eminently quotable movie just like all of a sudden all i hear is i'm your huckleberry say when you're a daisy if you do just oh my God. I mean, my favorite Doc Holliday quote is actually the most revelatory for that character, and it, it you can't quote it out of context the way you, you can with other lines of his, but one, Val Kilmer should have been nominated for an Oscar for that. Oh, yes. I, I don't know that, again, I'm not sure one, I'd have to double check who else was there that year, but nominated, certainly. But my favorite Doc Holliday line is just, near the end when he's asked, you know, short of being dead, what the hell are you in this for? And he says, Wyatt Earp is my friend. And I got There's lots this, of friends. I, I've got I, lots of friends. I don't. That is a great scene. As someone who does not have a tremendous number of friends. Yeah. Like when you, if you don't have a lot of friends, if, you, and I, again, I don't, I have a lot of acquaintances, very few friends. And I, that's just my yeah. personality more mm-hmm. than me insulting anyone. If I'm your friend and you say, Hey, we're going on a revenge kick. I'm there. <laughs> Okay, so one of us now needs to go find a reason to type into the chat room with with the rest of the recorders. We're going on a revenge kick, and let's just see how fast Robert responds. Yeah, see or Depends see on- which one he he the emoji gets attached to. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I'm going to give that information away for free. <laughs> that that's behind the paywall. Coming soon to our OnlyFans. <laughs> Yes, we, we, we need funding, but not that badly. <laughs> well, you you you'll have to have Mark pitch the OnlyFans idea to you. It's it, it's we we discussed actually. If you go back and listen to our last episode, me and Robert is, was on. It is it, discussed. It, it takes up the first twenty minutes or so of our attempted review of um. Uh, what was that stupid movie? Uh, Which Pray one? for the devil. Pray for the devil. Pray for the devil. There's there's nothing to talk about. So our first like 20 minutes is me mocking Mark's genitals and us discussing how, the setup for the OnlyFans. Oh, so it was Let, another uh, pet cemetery debacle. Exactly like that. We even made the reference. We that was the I, reference made. Yeah, yeah. I said <laughs> not since like, pet, not since pet cemetery have we been so desperate to talk about anything yeah. other than the movie. Yeah, and, you know, I'm officially I'll, making that a term when we watch when we have to review a movie and we cannot think of anything else to say. I'm calling it another pet cemetery debacle. Pretty much. Yeah, let's just say that um, cauliflower comparison was what um, <laughs> was was brought up, and I'm still haunted by it. <laughs> God, I, I need st- to listen to this. I stole that. I stole that from a from a book I I read not too long ago. Actually, it's a 
but the the story in that the story in that particular book was it dealt with a lawsuit it's kind of tangential to the it's a it's a footnote in the actual book but one of the characters had a uh, to deal with erectile dysfunction had surgically implanted uh, pumps put into his penis so you could then inflate them well apparently he sued because no one told him if you overinflate them there could be an explosion and after surgery to try and correct the problem his genitals were left looking and feeling apparently like a small piece of cauliflower and with that note <laughs> plugs that felt appropriate yeah it's pretty close it was either that or pinkie pie with the trombone I was going to say, like, since we're talking about sad genitals, the sad one would fit much better. <laughs> I, it was... I, I had no plugs. idea which one I wanted to go with. And Who plugs. wants to do their plugs first and save us from this nightmare? <laughs> go ahead, Robert. All righty. So, if you're interested in my musings on this and other topics, uh, thank you for listening, for the record. Um, you can find me on Damn You Hollywood this week. We're going uh, this coming Tuesday. We will be discussing Black Panther Two: Wakanda Forever, and I am not looking forward to that. Oh, for God's sake! I'm Hang looking on. forward to it. I want to talk Namor. Uh, haven't you heard how they pronounce it? Namor. It's Namor. You got to roll the R. And they're making a big deal out of it, actually. Like, they, they, no, you can't say Namor. It's Namor. Because everyone must roll their R's now. Whether you're in I Tolkien. I don't care. I still want to talk about him. I love this character, and I love what they've done with him. So, we'll be talking. Look, here's my, here's my complaints about that movie in a nutshell before, I, before I've seen it. One, it's almost three hours long. Two, your two protagonists are deeply unlikable characters. Three, everyone I know whose opinion I trust, whether I agree with it or not, that has seen it has given it has given it middling reviews. Like my friend Jeff Harris, who re, uh, who reviews stuff for Four One One Mania, he gave it a six out of ten. I want you to understand that Jeff is not a shill for Marvel, but he definitely errs on the positive side of Marvel. Now, if you're me, and you are me. Like, I'm not looking forward to this. So, but we will be reviewing it Tuesday on Damn You Hollywood. So we'll come by, listen to. I mean, the critic, no critic is going to say a bad thing about this movie for fear of being piled on. So you can't trust right. the critics on this as a general rule. Whether I like the movie or not, that's my stance on that. So we'll be reviewing that. I cover professional wrestling a few nights a week. AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW stuff on Thursday. In fact, my MLW review should be live about now. And WWE SmackDown on Fridays. Those are all in the wrestling zone of 411mania.com. I cover mixed martial arts for them as well. This coming Saturday, UFC 281. Big pay-per-view for them. They're back in Madison Square Garden. We've got two title fights, and we've got can't-miss fireworks between Michael Chandler and Dustin Poirier. So I almost said a different fighter who also was fireworks when he fought both of those guys. If you want a full preview of that event, I host the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. Uh, this last week was a review of the utterly banal entry into the UFC Fight Night Pantheon that we got on Saturday in a preview of UFC 281. So listen for that if you're interested in the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Wherever you're listening to this, punch in that into your podcast platform of choice. You can find me over there. And again, I'm here on TV Party on occasion. Uh, Damn you, Hollywood, which I mentioned. And yeah, that's it. So that's where you can find me as a general rule. 
My Twitter handle is on the screen. I'm a very innocuous follow on Twitter if you're so inclined. <laughs> hey, at least I, this time I actually kept the names. I don't know if you guys saw our review that we did uh, earlier this week on House of the Dragon, but I screwed up and had the banner below, so I didn't have the individual names on the uh, windows. <laughs> I, I thought I was clicking the one that gets the uh, banner that scrolls at the bottom throughout the whole time with the name of with the title of what you're discussing. I clicked the wrong one. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> uh, uh, you can find me over at Mosaic Media MC uh, on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, we just dropped the episode earlier today uh, about our mid-season rebuilding, uh, what you should do, anything fantasy football, go over there. Uh, Ty does an amazing job with our graphics. I uh, can't say enough about the... Is your fantasy suggestion get anything related to the Bengals? No, no. We we, <laughs> we we actually we do. I actually state that you need to trade Jamar Chase right now. Um, but That's the a bold call. Yeah, it's well. If you listen in context of the show, it makes sense. Uh, but yeah, Tyler does an amazing job with our graphics. Um, does uh, the arena football stuff over there? Definitely, if you got time, check out the Instagram, the TikTok. Uh, listen to us. We're across all podcasting platforms. Uh, Sundays, you can find me on Twitter under the Mosaic MC banner. Uh, live tweeting throughout the day of the football games. Um, and yeah, just if you're in, if you're into fantasy football, definitely give us a like, listen, and subscribe over there on all of our channels. All right, as far as my plugs, uh, I will be joining Robert to discuss Wakanda Forever next week. And I was thinking suspicion yet again, I will be the little uh, ray of sunshine. Uh, Again, I have negative expectations. We'll see if they are exceeded or not. I'm again. I haven't seen the movie yet. So if it's really good, I'm happy to say it's really good. I'm just saying I have concerns. What can I say? I am the sunflower to your uh, nuclear meltdown. That's about right. And as far as when I have not sold my soul to Mark Radulich, um, Honeysuckle Rose Creations, where fashion meets fandom at the intersection of geek and chic. We're putting together a bunch of stuff to get online here in the next week because we are getting ready for our Black Friday sale. Everything in both of our uh, Etsy and handmade and Amazon shops will be 20% off. And every order that is placed from Black Friday to Christmas Eve, for every order placed, we will be donating $5 to St. Jude's Children's Hospital. This is a charity drive we do every year really excited to be back with that we got a ton of stuff if you are a horror fan like the three of us are because there's obviously something very wrong with us we got a ton of really great horror themed jewelry among our most popular is our lament configuration hair barrette our room 237 earrings for those who are fans of the shining i just also added a pair of new midsummer earrings i survived midsummer and all like i was a crappy pair of earrings they're not crappy they're actually really good so we also, another one of our most popular is our choker featuring the cover of the handbook for the recently deceased. I know there's a ton of you Beetlejuice fans out there. So go ahead and take a look. We got a bunch of non-horror stuff, all geeky related. Cannot wait to get this uh, charity drive started. And as always, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and under duress Twitter. That's Honeysuckle Rose Creations, the intersection of geek and chic. So for Robert and Jason, I am Alexis Haina saying, be well, behave, be safe. And as we have learned in this episode, beware of rats. 